Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to tell you about Chris's new book. He wrote it with Sophia Press, and it's called A Devotional Journey into the Mass. And if you like this podcast, you're definitely going to want to get this book. Uh, But don't take my word for it. You can listen to Archbishop Chaput from Philadelphia. He says, This book is simply a delight, from its grounding in the sacramental thought of Romano Guardini through its wonderfully practical, beautifully written, step-by-step how-to guide to experiencing every key element of the Mass. It's exactly what the title says it is, a deeply satisfying journey to the heart of Catholic worship. Wow, that's amazing words from an amazing man. So check out that book. I'll put a link to it in uh, the social media post and in the podcast episode. Also, we are going to continue where we left off last week. This is going to be part two of Monsignor Francis Mannion's 10 Theses on Church Architecture. If you did not listen to last week's episode, part one, you should listen to that first and then come back to this episode. And we may even have a surprise for you at the end of this one. We may even have an 11th thesis. I don't know. You'll have to listen. So without further ado, episode 23 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Uh, if you did not join us last week... It's one week later. It's one week later. Uh, not for us. We're, we're actually recording on the same day. Don't it's say... One, it's one week later for you, though. And uh, if you did not listen to the episode last week... You then go, you missed it. Yeah, you should go do that and then listen to this one because uh, that's important. We're, we did uh, one through five... Of on Monsignor Mannion's 10 Theses on Church Architecture. Mm-hmm. And now we are going to do six through ten. And as I, be- I believe we ended it last time, one, two, three, four, five. And now we can go six, six seven, seven, eight, eight nine, nine, ten. ten. <laughs> but we're not going to say eleven, twelve. No, because he did not do twelve. It was ten. It was a oh, list of ten. Man. You have to be a certain age to know what that song is about. Did, uh, was that Electric certain... Company? No, that was Sesame Street. Oh, my Sesame goodness. Street? I went and watched those. If you, if you do that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve song on YouTube, go watch it. It's this really trippy cartoon. Very trippy like this pinball machine and there's like all this stuff it's a cartoon but it's a it's it's like a 70s acid trip man it's bad mm-hmm. but yeah. i remember i know i know how to count to 12 well i don't know what a 70s acid trip was um well you've been, I, to, I, you've I been to some I, ugly churches and I know, but i do I, know what an 80s acid trip. <laughs> 80s was the best decade <laughs> and i don't want to say that monsignor's uh uh little article here is is like to an acid trip but the some of these titles and things and headings. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, I mean, what is this called, Monsignor Mannion's? Toward a new era in liturgical architecture. That's what the article Ten theses, called? yeah. All right. But, but you know, but part of that. Could, if you could, uh, if Kevin were here, the editor, you'd say, mm-hmm. if you're going to rename that, something a little more catchy. Mm-hmm. What, what, what How to make be? good churches. Well, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's maybe getting to it. I kind of like to talk like a cowboy at West, you know. Make your churches good. That's yeah, what it is, really. Because when I think of liturgy, I think of a cowboy out west. Well, you should. <laughs> like all right, Billy all right. Crystal and City okay, Slickers. We got to get to this because these are amazing. So let's let's start with number six. Wait, wait, wait. You know what? Chris is here in the room. 
okay. for the first time since. You wouldn't know it. Oh, yeah, we won, we won an award. Best for, Catholic Podcast mm-hmm. from Fisher's Net, which is a place that does prizes for media, new media and stuff. So mm-hmm. congratulations, Chris. Let yeah. me shake your hand. Thanks. Chris is... Well, he wiped it off first. I'm not sure why he had to do that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> anyway. So that's good? Yeah. 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 Did Are you, you happy? Did, did happy you get your, uh, your check? <laughs> oh, that was made out to both of us. Sorry. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll reimburse you later. Yeah, we definitely don't pay. Our check for zero dollars and zero cents. <laughs> oh. Well, that's kind of cool. I know. So we, now we can put a little gold ribbon on our, our webpage. Mm-hmm. So Peter's Net people, whoever you are, I don't know who you are, but thank Fisher's you. Net. Peter's Net. Oh, Peter's Net. Fisher's Net. Sorry. Well, Peter's Net, I don't know who you are, but Fisher's Net, I don't know. Who, Peter's a fisherman, so it's all right. Anyway, what are we doing here? <laughs> Number six? Number six. Come on. Number six. How am I the one who's supposed to rein in you guys to get paying attention? Come on. I'm still in hyper-caffeination plus hyper-sleep oh. quality phase. So here's the thesis you're six. you're drinking a can of soda. Well, this is caffeine-free. It's called oh. Squirt. It's so gross. I know. It's really good. It's a thirst, thirst quencher. Okay, number six. Will you let me talk? All mm-hmm. right. Liturgical art and architecture properly have a public rather than domestic character. Catholic liturgy is ritually public, architecturally spacious, and socially inclusive. See, what does that mean? That's what I'm getting at. It's obvious. It's a public character (laughs) rather than a domestic character. Well, what does that mean? Oh, okay. So it means that it's the... It's not supposed to look like a living room. Right, exactly. And at that point, people were talking about God's house as our house and... The church is the house of God, and they were looking at the Acts of the Apostles, and the apostles broke bread in their homes. Oh, yeah. And so this notion is they, they would say things like, properly speaking, liturgy is a domestic celebration. It was meal theory that was totally overwhelming eschatology theory or heavenly theory or glory theory or whatever. So meal theory was really, really big. And so the idea was that mass should feel comfortable and warm, and the priest is like your dad, and you're sitting around the table of God, and that's, that's what liturgy is. So it's breaking bread with your buddies. Oh, yeah. So altars started to look like... like tables. Tables. And, and churches the, started to look like living rooms. And they were carpeted, and, uh, right. and bread started to look and like you, bread. You, know, you would never have a big <laughs> inlaid marble, gold mosaic dining room table in your house, right? That's a public thing. That's an altar. Um, but a house would have a you know wooden table, sit around it in your casual clothes, and have this you know this sort of meal theory. So he's saying art and architecture are properly public rather than domestic. What does a public thing look like? Well, it's has to last longer. It's it's has to be understandable by everybody of all different temperaments. And usually, if you think about like a great public library from the 1930s or 40s, it's not carpeting and. Uh, or the, even the 20s, it's marble staircases and inscriptions about what books are. So the Chicago, the old Chicago Public Library is very much like that. You see all these names of authors and marble um, domes, and, and he's just like, whoa, this is a building for everyone to be ennobled. And it looks important. Right. right. Well, and some of those things, we'll hear Gardini talk about this, I think, in maybe another podcast. Is they're, they're kind of, they transcend individual preferences because they have to be for everybody from you know all backgrounds and ages and nationalities and races and the rest. So there's kind of a, um, it, 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 yeah, it's more universal and transcendent above the particular. Now your your house may be different from my house and your living room it is. different from my yeah, uh, and that's okay and that's how it should be. Each one should reflect you know a family's unique you know history and preferences and likes and dislikes and whatnot. But when we come together in a public place, it doesn't really. It has to be able to, to be used by and speak to all of us. Right. Whether you're in, J- you're in China or Japan or India or you know, Europe, wherever you go, whatever culture has a highly developed architectural uh, tradition, 
there's always public buildings which are obviously public. They're big, they're in important places, they're made of materials they're, that are rich, they're open to everybody. And then there's domestic architecture, which is less. And so public has a character that's different from domestic. But there is like postmodern public buildings too, right? Well, we use public buildings. We, we often make big, giant private buildings into use as public buildings, but they don't have a public character sometimes. Okay. Well, that, that, what you were saying reminded me of something about, you know, why do churches have to be so you know, expensive and fancy and things like that, and, you know, especially in reference to um, uh, money that funds that could be given to the poor, which, of course, the church and her members should serve the poor and help the poor. But uh, I, I think I've heard you say before, I mean, a church, anybody can go into that. The poorest right. of the poor. And that's the why he calls it socially inclusive. Mm. And he was very big at the cathedral in um, Salt Lake City that they didn't just have the rich people there. They would give out. They would have. They used to have tickets for the Christmas Eve mass. So they stopped that. What? So that the home uh, homeless people would come in and sit in the front row, and they'd be next to the millionaires. And they always wanted to make sure that the soup kitchen was going, and they had the choir school mm. going. They had the highest quality quality liturgical music, but that the homeless people could come in and enjoy that too. It wasn't a, a social club. I think I remember another anecdote. I mean, they had a very uh, a robust front door ministry where people would come to get food who didn't have it. And at the same time, they had one of these, you know, uh, very high level um, art shows or display or something like that. And he said that one of the, I think he said one of the benefactors and one of the visitors said, well, I mean, we, we can't have this with all the, all the homeless people, you know, here. And he said something, well, then you don't have to don't come, come. because they're not, they're not leaving. Right. Oh. And so, you know, you mentioned the church. Wait, came. is this his parish in, in Salt Lake? Okay. The, cathedral, the cathedral parish where he used to be. He's not rector there anymore. Um, but you said churches cost a lot of money, but they don't have to. You know, like if you're walking along a little dirt road in, I don't know, Austria or something, you know, they have these little chapels. Soldier Grove, Wisconsin. <laughs> they have these little wayside chapels that are tiny. You know, they're little rooms, but they have a, an architectural and public character that looks like a church. And so it might not be made of of granite, but when you see it, you say, oh, that's a chapel. That's You're not stopping in the tavern. And it's very clear that one is, it's a public We, we have one of those in Soldier's Grove. Too. Oh, a tavern. I'm sure you have more than one. The Rolling Ground, uh, what's it called? Rolling Ground Bar and Grill. I rolling Ground Bar and Grill, yeah. You should go there sometime. All right. Send us beer and hamburgers, please. And pie crust. Right. So he was saying at that time, intimacy was big, you know, like therapeutic model of liturgy, and you have to feel attached to each other. You know, some of that still lingers with us when the priest says, uh, turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself. You know, does knowing your neighbor's friend awkwardly, name uh, awkwardly at the beginning of Mass, does that really help you enter into the heavenly Jerusalem? You know, it's a kind of older model that was really big at the time. All right. What number was that? Six? six. That was number six. We, we can skip seven, right? We just go right to eight? It's the most important one. No, actually, we, well. No, actually, we, we should just should go to 11. <laughs> 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 What's that movie? Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Eleven will be like our our interpretation at the end. Our, the the last. Yeah. All right. Thesis seven. Mm-hmm. Church buildings serve both liturgical and devotional functions. You can understand this, Chris. <laughs> Speak more slowly, would you? The please? restoration of the devotional will render church architecture more genuinely popular, which is interesting. You know, people hated architect church architecture in that period. They would which say, period? like the 80s, 90s, mm. like they would pay money to build these churches and they hated them from the day they opened. They're like, why do we build such an ugly thing? We hate this stuff. And they kind of resigned to, well, it's the best we can do. It's what Father said or it's what the architects give us. They didn't like him. And they would say, this church looks like a pizza hut or an airplane hangar or whatever people would say. But he says one of the things that help people make, make, make churches that make, why can't I speak? 
one of the things that will help people feel like the church is theirs, like it's, they love it, is if the devotional functions and the liturgical functions are both there. So why wouldn't there be devotional functions in a church at this period? Well, I think there was a... You tell me. This is right. Oh, wait. There was a... There was a uh, uh, the, the practice, true or imagined, maybe it's a caricature, maybe it's not, although we Pius XII uh, talk about it, was that during the liturgy, people were practicing too often devotions uh, and not actively engaging in the rite. And so the pendulum, in a certain sense, swung uh, very hard the other way. And so there was this effort to, by some to rid, um, to rid, to rid the, the, the Christian life, the prayer life from devotions, not just from the liturgy. There's a, there, there's a right emphasis on the liturgy, but to the detriment of the devotional life. And so they just kind of disappeared. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, the stereotype before the council is that in a parish that wasn't well-formed liturgically, they couldn't understand the liturgy or they didn't have their missal, or even if they did, it was too hard to follow and the low mass was silent. And they would do the rosary instead, or they'd do their novena to St. Joseph, or they would do everything except liturgy. And in fact, some of the church documents actually encouraged that. They would say things like, well, since you can't really answer in Latin, you can just pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. Um, but then what they were trying to do after that was balance out, let liturgical things be liturgical, devotional things be devotional. And so all the church documents are very good. The official documents say devotions are good, but they're not in place of liturgy. But some people, the overzealous types, would say, oh, devotions are bad, get rid of them, get all the statues out of the churches, paint it beige, have no you know, devotional distractions. So older churches would have little side chapels and little statues that you'd light candles. But if you look at the churches of this day, there's not much of that at all. There might be one statue in a corner somewhere, and everything else is just empty. And so he's trying to say, no, both of those things belong there. And if you do that, then people will actually like their church. They have quiet corners to sit in and dark, shadowy places and places to light candles and sit quietly outside of Mass. And then in the liturgical time, they do liturgy, but not just that. This reminds me of that, Gardi- that same Gardini point we talked about, or he talks about the liturgy is, is sort of has a, an objective, universal, uh, across times and places quality to it, but that doesn't mean by comparison that that uh, the devotional life has no place because that's where the individual's preferences and needs and uh, you know are expressed and so those are a necessary and integral part of a person's prayer life so maybe not you wouldn't find them in the liturgy but they also have to be there for uh, for the person to express and it's his a needs. it's a private experience between you, your personal relationship with Christ whereas the liturgy is public and you are all you are all the church and so to break off and do some, some devotions during the liturgy would then divide you from the body, right? Is that correct? That's right, and you're, well not doing, you're not doing the liturgy. During mm-hmm. the liturgy, you're doing something else. But that doesn't mean devotions are not good. It just means correct devotions in devotional time and place, liturgy and liturgy time and place, they're both good. In fact, both necessary. Right. You know, if you go out and exercise and then you get hungry. Hypothetically speaking. You're not, <laughs> yes, you're not eating to get hungry. You're exercising to get hungry, and it builds up this desire to eat or to be healthier. And so a devotion is supposed to flow out of the liturgy in your relationship with God, stimulate your desire for God, and then bring you back. And uh, it's not in place of it. I think the difficult thing with that, though, and I've had conversations with you, Chris, about this, is there are a lot of devotions that have liturgical components to them, and then sometimes that can get Dif- uh, difficult to distinguish, you know, the liturgical aspect mm-hmm. versus the devotion mm-hmm. aspect. Right. Like Eucharistic Adoration is a highly liturgical devotion, mm-hmm. and it's very close. And so it's more liturgical, in, even though it's in the devotional car- category. So anyway, he's saying if people have places to do their devotional stuff, 
that'll make church architecture popular, that something that people want to use and love. Okay, so you showed me a picture of your daughter Agnes, mm-hmm. and after Mass, what does she do? She goes to the Statue of Mary, mm-hmm. and she prays. Yeah. That's right. My kids love to light the candles after Mass. Mm-hmm. They're always... You know, they bring their little money and their quarters and their whatnot from home so they can go and light a candle and they write their intention in the, in the prayer book. It's a very important part uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of what they do. And so they love right. it. And Although those, I'm trying to get Agnes not to do it during Mass, but she doesn't understand the distinction. Yeah. Never listen to the podcast. But yeah, see, she, you're she, forming her in liturgical movement ideals. She doesn't know it, but she mm-hmm. will, she'll appreciate it someday. All right. And, you know, liturgy, it says sit still. Only say what we tell you, only when we tell you, right? It's a, it's a disciplined kind of behavior. Devotions, go pour out your heart, go do what you like. And so devotions are kind of more fun in some ways. They're, they're less like work and more like self-expression. And that's why this, he's saying if they're there, that'll make this architecture you know, more proper to what people like to do. And then they can do liturgical stuff as well. Excellent. That was number seven. So number eight. We are eight. cruising along eight. here. Number eight. eight. This one's fairly simple, even for you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, right, I'm sure. <laughs> the modernist movement in architecture is not adequate to the service of the Catholic liturgy. Modernism in liturgy and art is undergirded by a mechanistic model of religion and culture. That sounds about right. Mm. Yeah. I think he mm. did it. All right. Number nine. <laughs> <laughs> don't even have to explain that. <laughs> well, you know, he, go, he goes through mod, modernity. You know, we went through the four attributes of modernity in the, in the uh, postmodern so, thing yeah, a while yeah, back. Post, postmodern, postmodern, modern. modern. Nice. That's a good one. And he yeah. says modernist architecture is very much like that. It's self-consciously rational. And in some ways, it's divorced from nature. It's trying to overcome nature. You pour concrete and make it look like it it's floats. intentionally rejects tradition, too. Right. It's anti-traditional, anti-historical by definition. Now, these days, there's all kinds of postmoderns, But in the high modern period of the 50s, the enemy was traditional architecture. They wouldn't let you study architectural history in architecture school because they didn't want you to get poisoned by bad ideas from the past and you had to create from you know new every time. Um, he also says it's a dualist approach. It's either or. So it's either modern or it's bad or it's either structurally rational or it's you know lying to you. And uh, he says it actually grows out of a Calvinistic and Puritanistic understanding that architecture doesn't have a quality. It's, a, it's an anti-sacramental like, view. Who's that? Paul Tillich... Um podcast we did, right? What's a tillich? Is that yeah, what, what is a tillich? Is that larger than a, than a bread box? box? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically... You guys got me. He's just saying, you know, the sacramental worldview is such that it has all these characteristics. Modernist architecture does the opposite of that, and therefore it's not very good. See? Not so hard. That's not so hard. Now that one was not bad. Yeah. So, number... Thesis, you know where we are? Number... Now, he's a bit of a prophet here because he's writing in the 90s and there hadn't really been this revival of traditional church architecture that we've seen in the last 20 years. But he says the emerging era in church art and architecture will be characterized by the postmodern embrace of the classical. Postmodernity allows for vital reappropriation of Catholic liturgical architectural tradition. He was absolutely right on that. Really? You know, with the exception of a few giant cathedrals in the West Coast, most of which are kind of old now in Oakland and L.A. and um, now in Orange County. For the most part, nobody is building the big modern star, what they call the star architect churches, the star architect. Super <laughs> never fancy. Heard that. Oh, you never I heard of star architect? <laughs> so there are these people who are real trendy in the museum world and in the university world, and they're hyper-modern, and you have to get one of that architect's churches, I mean, buildings to show that you're you know, with it. They're called the star architects or the star architects. And people don't really care if the buildings are good. They just want to say, we have an, a building by Frank Gehry or mm-hmm. Calatrava or whoever it is. And so... <laughs> I don't know those guys. 
Anyway. Well, if you've seen the uh, Pritzker Pavilion in uh, Chicago or the mm-hmm. Disney Concert Hall in L.A. or the Bill Bilbao oh, Museum yeah. in, in Spain. Really wavy, wavy sheets of metal. Yeah. Sheets of aluminum foil. Looks like it was crumbled up mm-hmm. in the corner. Um, that's Frank Gehry's work. And so um, people don't really care what building they get as long as it's a Frank Gehry. It's like a collecting something by a famous artist rather than caring about the piece of art that you get. Hmm. But what he says is what's coming in the future is this reappropriation of the classical that um, postmodern will allow because postmodern sort of breaks the modern stranglehold on either or and the rejection of tradition. And he says this is what's coming next. And he was absolutely right 20 years ago. And we're on the front lines of that, the beginning of or Well, yeah, in 2001, here at the Liturgical Institute, we had a conference on architecture called Building the Church for 2010, which is now a long time ago. Maybe we should do that again. Update it. And we proposed, you know, classical architects came in and they showed what they might do. And uh, I remember at that time thinking, this will never happen. Yeah, it's fine to talk about this, uh, whistling in the wind or whatever, but... It, man, it happened, and much faster than, than we thought it would, and he was right. What are some that. examples? Of new church, new mm-hmm. classical churches? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the biggest ones is the new cathedral down in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a full-fledged classical cathedral, seats thousand-something people. They're just about to finish the new cathedral in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, by James McCreary, and uh, that's quite lovely. If you haven't seen that, go to Knoxville Cathedral of the Sacred Heart and look it up online. It's just amazing. I think it's dedicated next month. Um, chapels all over the place. The Nashville Sisters built a chapel, new chapel at Thomas Aquinas College, uh, our own John Paul II chapel here on campus. Um, lots of churches all over the place by architects like Duncan Stroy, quite famous for his uh, chapel in Our Lady of Guadalupe Shrine up by you in La Crosse. He's building a big chapel for uh, Jesuit High School in Florida now. It's quite, uh, quite amazing. David Maleka is another architect in Columbus. There's lots of church architects out there who are building traditional churches now, and it's kind of normal. Just and, since that's been written. Yep. And renovating art right. churches as well. That's right. another big thing, too. In fact, my friend, Father Matt Fish from uh, Washington, D.C., just sent me a, a, somebody else's tweet today, and it was a church in Texas, and they made a banner, and it showed all their churches as they replaced them. So it's at 1902, and they had a little church, and then 1972, then 1985. And, and, the <laughs> quote, and then they built this more traditional church. And I, the, the quote was something like, from a pizza hut to a spaceship to a YMCA to finally looking like a church, right? So <laughs> that was the Pizza Hut of the 70s, the spaceship, the spaceship of the 60s, the Pizza Hut of the 70s, the YMCA of the 80s. Now, finally, they have a church that looks like a church. It's called St. William's Church uh, down somewhere in Texas. And then out, out here, actually, they, um, they took two churches and they deconstructed them and rebuilt them out in the, in the suburbs here. Right. Suburbs of Chicago. Right. It was an old church down in the city that there was going to get knocked down because there are no Catholics there anymore. And they took it apart and put it back together up in the burbs where the Catholics are. Amazing. So that's uh, St. Raphael's? Yes, but it's your old St. John of God church by okay. Henry Schlax, who's an architect who founded the architecture school at Notre Dame. I, I don't want to get too technical with that, wow. but would, do you have to decommission that church and then take it down and then yeah, re Deconsecrated, right? Wouldn't a church be deconsecrated if, before they close it or knock it down? I know. I don't think there is actually a right because you're for, re, you're rebuilding it piece by piece. Just yeah, I think else. once you took it apart, it would be undedicated okay. or unconsecrated. But they haven't finished building this church, and mm-hmm. so the like the front is there, and the doors, and then part of the towers. But they have all the pieces out in the grass for the actual like towers, and you can actually see the little carved pieces of stone, and they're all numbered and everything. They're all sitting in the tall grass. It's pretty cool. Amazing. All right. 
Number 10, 10, 10. Finally, number 10. Okay. Now, this is where you were hinting at this in last week's episode, Chris. That oh, what, were, remember, wait, what, what were you hinting at? He said, orientational or directional oh, yeah. configuration within liturgical buildings is the fundamental programmatic factor regarding the placement and interrelationship of liturgical appointments. Okay, here's one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> what does that Break mean? it down. Well, he in the 1990s, right? We talk about out orientem liturgy, or you know, the priests and the people facing the east are facing the same direction now, and it's still kind of a hot topic. In 1997 or six, when he wrote this, this this was like pie in the sky kind of thinking. So he's just very delicately walking along these lines, and he he didn't celebrate the mass out orientem himself. I don't know that he does now, but he had the sense that this was going to be an issue in his prophetic sense. So he said, there's something to be said for priests and people praying in the same direction, that there's some confusion when the priests and the people are looking in different directions, especially during the Eucharistic prayer, because that's one prayer of Christ, head and members, priests and people together, uh, to the Father. And he says it could uh, reverse the neoclericalist dominance and give mm. a focus beyond the priest. So if the priest is turning the thing into the priest show, if he's not turning into the pre-show and the people are not looking at him, but together with him, looking at God the Father, then that would bring the liturgical movement's notion that the people have a dignity as members of the mystical body to offer their sacrifice as well, and not just wait around for the priest to finish or to do his thing. And so he just tiptoed into that one very gently, 20-something years ago. But now it's coming to the fore, and so those last two, number nine and ten, are quite uh, prophetic. So this article is old, but man, it's still good. Still, still very Oldie good. but a goodie. Yeah. Would All right. You, is there an 11th? Would you add one to it? Yeah, what would you add? If you had to add something, what would you add? Oh, gosh. He, he did it so well. I think one thing that um, he just touched on but didn't really have that chance to develop was this notion of the church building as an image of the mystical body. I think that's something that um, is kind of a newer uh, concept since then, but... I talk about it all the time because it's... A, okay, but say it in like a really intellectual way and then break it down for us. Hmm. Well, the church building is composed of many members, which, is, which uh, fulfills the temple being made of stones not made by human hands or anticipates the <laughs> eschatological glory of the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, that wasn't very... No, but yeah. that's okay. Sorry, I'm not smart. What can I tell you? <laughs> we put, put, you, we put yeah. you on the spot. Yeah, yeah. put you on the spot. Sorry. What I always tell people is I, I, you know, I don't have degrees in liturgy. My degrees are in architecture, architectural history. And I don't come to this as an academic. I come to this as a Christian, which means I can only talk about it in the light of like salvation <laughs> lingo, right? So what does scripture tell us? The second person, the Trinity, Christ, is back at the right hand of the Father. He's in the dialogue of love of the Trinity. And so he wants us there too. This is the promise to bring us back to God. And so we're scattered. We're people scattered all over the world. The way we become like God is to become like Christ and to join ourselves to him. And when what he does to, with the Father, offering himself and being glorified eternally, continually, when that happens to us, then we become like him. And so the many members get assembled into this body of Christ. We're not all the same, but we have to join ourselves to kind of the headship of Christ. And so the church building indicates that every rock, every stone, every floor tile, every roof shingle is many, many members that by themselves are nothing when they're assembled into the church building. And then they're added, the heavenly angels and saints and all the heavenly things and the gem-like quality that shows our perfection. That is a symbol of us. All the church documents say it. It's called the church because it symbolizes the church, which is the people. And if you say the people are everything and the building is nothing, then you're missing out on this whole notion that the church is the many members of Christ brought in, put in the right place and glorified and offered 
in worship to the Father. Man, you definitely took it to 11 there. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. good. Nice job, Dennis. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks. And I do think it fits. I think it plays exactly with the theme of what he was, what he was talking about. So uh, next year we'll ask you about number 12. So, uh, <laughs> And then you can sing your Sesame Street right. song yeah, all, that's all the true. way through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, twelve. All right. Should we answer our question? Should we answer that question that we didn't answer last week? Can we answer yeah, 12 questions? Yeah. No, 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 no. That's okay. too many questions. All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Jesse, do we have a question? We do have a question. Nice. All right, this this question comes from Matthew. Uh, Matthew says, guys, comma, should I uh, announce the punctuation in these questions? No, probably not. Yeah. He says, guys. Do you know that Victor (laughs) Borg punctuation? Yes. You can do that. He's pretty funny. All right. Guys, your podcast has instilled in me a much greater appreciation for uh, mass and rites and, have, and had been making my participation more efficacious. My question. Awesome. Today at mass, I saw in the breaking of the bread the slaughter of the paschal victim. Then in light of this, I read the purification of the vessels as a cleaning of the altar of the bloody sacrifice. Is this one of the correct interpretations? Thanks and God bless. Matt. Well, Chris... I would think there's something good going on in this question, in his interpretation. Yeah. Uh, what is made present in the Eucharist is the sacrifice of Calvary in an unbloody manner. Right? Right. We can't uh, sacrifice the Lamb of God any longer, Jesus. Uh, he's uh, eternally at the right hand of the Father. He and all that uh, took place in his life, especially and including his uh, Paschal sacrifice, is made present uh, and so, like the the double consecration, Saint Thomas will say, with the uh, with uh, the body and the blood helps to signify the separation of body and blood and the representation of that sacrifice. So, yes, um, right. Behold the, the lamb, lamb of God doesn't behold mean God. behold a lamb, a piece of bread, right? A whole yeah. loaf of bread. It's it's yeah. real sacrifice foreshadowed by the sacrifices of the Israelites. And when you read those descriptions of how it was supposed to be done, it was quite precise. They had mm-hmm. vessels and water and cleaning and tying up the feet and then slitting the throat. It was a big, serious, dramatic, bloody mm-hmm. mess. Yeah. But fortunately, God has rescued us from the need to do that all the time. Yeah, so what, what is made present, the bloody sacrifice is pre- present in an unbloody way. It's a, Again, I think St. Thomas will say it's a sacramental sacrifice. And so... Which doesn't mean it's not real. It just means it's in the form of sacrament. Right. It's not... Um, uh, it's not uh, like you'd slaughter you know, a lamb today. And so it's... Um, Certainly the sacrifice made present, but in a way that's different from what we might uh, associate it with in the natural or physical world. So that's, uh, I think that's right. Now, what, what happens after the sacrifice is, um, is, is the purification of the vessels 
ought it to be seen as, you know, the cleaning up of from the, from the slaughter of the lamb. Uh, I think my opinion is on the one hand, uh, maybe, yes, possibly. What I think I'm saying <laughs> what is... I think I'm saying, uh, yeah, I suppose after a fashion that could be the case. Um, and there, there are in the history of kind of liturgical interpretations, you know, the, the church will do certain things for a particular reason, uh, but then uh, the faithful uh, will, will bring to them uh, kind of uh, personal or pietistic or spiritual interpretations that may or may not be entirely associated with that act. So sometimes, um, like in the classroom, I think this is called uh, weak allegory. So we like allegories and uh, in the allegorical interpretation, but when, when we bring something to, a liturg- to an interpretation that's not inherently or, assess- or essentially associated with it, it's from a more individual perspective. So for example, um, w- when the priest would wash his hands uh, at mass with a lavabo, one interpretation of this had been, well, this is uh, akin to uh, Pontius Pilate washing his hands before he would hand Christ over to sacrifice. Well, it doesn't really mean that. But uh, if that is something that can you know, help the faithful, I suppose, to, to come to uh, an understanding, then yeah, perhaps that's right. So is that a legitimate interpretation? Well, I think, the, I, I think what I mean to say by this is, I don't think the church sees it that way, but that's not uh, to say necessarily that you yourself are wrong in seeing it in that way too. So if it can help you enter into the mystery, then... Um, to have a typological a understanding, a fulfillment of typologists, I think that's, that's good, right? The church says the Eucharist is a sacrificial meal. So to say it's merely a meal is not enough. And so to say in your mind, it's now unbloody, but there's an origin in it that is in the blood of Christ as a victim who was torn. And that was prefigured by actual bloody sacrifices. I think that's one way to understand the full context of it. But I don't know that you would say that that's happening in that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, when you talked about a typological interpretation, again, this is uh, back from my own uh, classroom days here, right? So there's these interpretations of sacred scripture, right? There's the literal and the spiritual, and the spiritual includes the typological, right? There's a moral one, and there's also a, uh, an eschatological one. But the thing is, these spiritual interpretations must be rooted in the literal interpretation. And if they get unmoored from that, then they just start to mean sort of anything. And I think there can be a parallel here with liturgical symbols, is that the spiritual interpretation, and no doubt there are many, you know, you pour the water in the chalice, I can think right offhand of three different interpretations of what that means. Can only one of them be right? Well, no, I, I suppose after fashion, they can all be right. But they all have to be rooted somehow in the literal uh, execution of that sign and symbol. So the, the liturgy signs and symbols can't just mean anything that every person wants them to mean. They have to have some association right. with They're the reality. Recapitulated in Christ, right? That's, so that's what I was going to say. They all get under the headship of Christ. So there's many streams that feed into this, the Old Testament, New Testament, eschatological anticipation. So there are many things that are there, and you can see one or more and one emphasis. But if they're not recapitulated in Christ, if they're not part of the Paschal Mystery, then they're probably not. But at bottom, is that a legitimate interpretation? I don't know that it's necessarily the church's interpretation, but insofar as it's connected to what's happening in the Mass, if that's an interpretation that helps you to pray the mystery, then I'd say yes. Sure. All right, Matt, I hope that answered your question. And if any of our other listeners want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. Does that make any sense? Yep. I'm going to keep that one in there. What you just said. 
The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.